The Guardian. That underwater cacophony of high-pitched whistles, clicks and buzzing sounds come from a rather enigmatic but iconic creature. Narwhals. Dubbed the unicorns of the sea, surprisingly little is known about them, from how many there are to why exactly males have a large rapier-like spiralling tusk protruding through their upper lip. Some scholars may start throwing different objects into each other for, because they believe different theories about the purpose of this tusk. In today's episode, we're entering the world of narwhals. With the help of Inuit hunters, geophysicists have now managed to get close enough to these secretive animals to listen in. Recording their underwater soundscape may help to solve some of the puzzling mysteries of narwhals. They are very shy and skittish animals, so to approach them with your instrumentation is very challenging because they just flee. I'm Nicola Davis, and this is Science Weekly. To find out more, I spoke to Evgeny Podolsky, a geophysicist at Hokkaido University in Japan. Evgeny, you're a geophysicist, so how did you end up studying narwhal sounds in a fjord in Greenland? So it's been already five years. My colleagues and I were studying glacier fjords at the northwest tip of Greenland, uh, very close to Canada and uh, about maybe 1,000 kilometers from the North Pole. And glaciers are changing here rapidly, making impacts uh, on the ocean. And oceans are also impacting glaciers. So we've been studying this area for uh, quite some time. And uh, novels, they are there every summer in enormous uh, numbers. And at some point, I realized that actually it's very little known uh, population, right? In front of me. So we've been working in the area and missing this elephant in the room, so to say. And tell me a bit about these creatures. So so they're not that well studied, are they? What do we know about them? Well, as you probably heard, uh, more than 500 years ago, people thought that unicorn's horn, this amazing uh, spiral, sometimes three meters long tusk, uh, is coming from unicorn, but it's coming from this unique whale. So its male uh, weights about one and a half tons. And these animals are living in one of the most remote and hostile for humans uh, oceans. So uh, why we know so little is because they're living in a sea ice. Half a year for them is polar night. So to observe them, to approach them, is very challenging. So that's why we know quite limited amount of information about this, uh, I think. Evgeny, can you just tell us why do these creatures have this enormous tusk in the first place? They're not using it to create a fish kebab, are they? Why, why have they got this tusk? Oh, uh, this question uh, is a very... A hard one because some scholars may start throwing different objects into each other for because they believe different theories about the 
purpose of this task. <laughs> and uh, I found myself convinced uh, by several studies which were made recently. It's not for uh, grilling uh, barbecues, as you say. It's for mainly, according to the most recent work, it's playing a role in intrasexual selection. So if you check the titles of uh, papers about this, I think it was something like, the longer the better. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's uh, usually something a male novel has for getting attention of uh, females. At the same time, if you start looking at papers prepared by uh, dentists, you will be surprised to find that actually they show that this tusk is probably also can be an extraordinary sensory organ which can feel changes in salinity or temperature and maybe pressure. So there are two main theories and probably they can coexist, but the problem about the behavioral importance of the tusk is that there is very little observations. Narwhals are known for being elusive and mysterious, which has given them this sort of rather sort of mythical aura almost. How did you manage to find and record them? Are they, are they difficult to actually track down? Yes, exactly. They are very shy and skittish animals. So to approach them with your instrumentation is very challenging because they just flee. And here how... I found a very easy way to do so without stressing these animals is by joining Inuit hunting expeditions. And this allows us to get really, really close. So they are trying to approach them by kayaks, which is a requirement and a traditional way of doing it for harpooning an animal. And that's why they have to be very quiet and they know how to find an animal much better than any foreigner and outsider know. Tell us about the kinds of calls you recorded. So you were able to listen in to these creatures and their, the sounds that they were making. What, what do their calls, you know, just tell us a bit about their calls. What do they sound like? The main type of call is called click. So they're just clicking all the time for echolocation. To orient themselves because they see with uh, the sound as humans do with sonar. And this helps them to find the way through the sea ice to find their prey. The next type is called click burst or terminal buzz, which to my ear sounds like chainsaw. And they emit the sound when um, they are diving to impressive depths to find their fish, for example, like Arctic cod or Greenland halibut. When they approach their fish, which is a fast-moving target, they start this buzz because they need to update their information about the position of the target the way bats and other dolphins do. And from this intensity uh, intervals between clicks, we can even say how far the animal is from the fish uh, sometimes. And then the third one, it's uh, serving uh, a purpose of social calls. 
So they are communicating with uh, other members of the pod or group by emitting sounds which remind whistles and so-called pulsed calls. And these are kind of closer to our ear. We can hear them better than the previous two types because clicks are ultrasonic. It's above our hearing ability. And so you recorded narwhals as they swam near to a carving glacier front. Now that's a that's a pretty big event there. You know, glaciers are very noisy places at the best of times. But when they're breaking up, you're getting cracks and groans and bubbling water and all sorts of sounds going on. Were you surprised to find that these creatures are dependent on sound in an area where it's so noisy? I mean, how, how do they make themselves heard to each other? Or how do they use sound to locate their prey when you've got all of this sort of noisy background stuff going on? The cacophony of the ice fjord is, is impressive. It's one of the most noisy places in the ocean, as I understood by studying a bit. You have continuous cracking, as you say, and bubbles and icebergs, and animals apparently are living in these waters, uh, which they call home, for hundreds of thousands of years, and they adapted to this. Of course, we expected that they are communicating uh, in a smart way by just uh, choosing a right frequency band. So they are not interfering much with all this uh, environmental noise we observed. So, for example, when we just look at the frequencies, it's all extremely high frequencies. So as I said, there, a lot of it happens in ultrasonic frequencies, so above uh, 20,000 hertz. But the things related to motion of ice is taking place within a quite low frequency band. So it's below uh, Five, ten thousand hertz. So, animals apparently aware of that because they spent there quite some time. So, Evgeny, obviously, you know, narwhals are there that they're they're hunting fish. Tell us a bit about the habitat. So, do they normally get so up close to to glacier fronts? So, we are not sure what brings so many narwhals to this fjord. They come from somewhere. We are even not sure from where. For some reason, which we are also not sure yet to answer, because there is a contradictory evidence uh, collected by s- researchers in different areas of Greenland. For example, we can see that uh, some scholars suggest that uh, novels they do not forage so much in summer. So foraging is not their main objective in uh, July and August and September here. But at the same time, they are producing this click bursts or terminal buzzes for finding prey. So they still do forage. One of the most uh, surprising and amazing things I've seen in Greenland at the glacier we work is called a subglacial discharge plume. So this is when fresh meltwater, due to summer heat uh, appearing on the surface of ice, uh, penetrates uh, through cracks and appears uh, at the calving front. It emerges from the bottom of the glacier and due to its uh, low density, it's rising to the surface of the fjord for hundreds of meters. Through this salty water, 
and uh, brings with it a lot of things which were in the deep water. For example, nutrients, zooplankton, and even fish sometimes. So it brings all these things to the surface, which becomes a foraging hotspot for birds. So you're in the Arctic desert. In summer, it's all rock and ice and white and there is nothing. There are no trees, there is no green, except some small grass. And to see this uh, hotspot of life, which, as we know from working on the glacier, is attracting uh, seals, we start wondering if this is a hotspot of life, what brings other bigger mammals to this area? How whales are involved into this, we don't know because uh, there is uh, very little observational evidence in front of the calving glaciers due to just difficulty of working there and observing animals because there are all these massive icebergs and it's just dangerous uh, and remote. So uh, what the whales are doing there, we, we don't know. And also, I mean, we've talked a bit there about calving glaciers, but clearly with global heating, the habitat is changing. What does that mean for their future? And do we need to start monitoring them more closely to better understand that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So when we want to use sounds to monitor and understand what happens to novels, we do so because these animals, they have a very uncertain future because they are living in a very unique habitat. So in winter, they can stay in uh, sea ice uh, which is covering 95% of the ocean, and they're fine there. But when this sea ice is gone, and uh, when the glaciers are retreating and grounding on land eventually, which will happen in the next several hundred years, so the environment they got used to is changing in ways which are very new for this narrow ecological niche the animals are occupying. On top of this, we also have not only environment, but humans are coming and they're coming for, uh, for example, for oil and gas when they're uh, using seismic air guns, um, which are extremely noisy thing for animals and very stressful for them. We have increased uh, traffic like ships and cruise. So the animals, they have a certain future and that's why starting to monitor them in some consistent and long-term way is very important today because uh, they are entering into unknown waters which also will be visited more frequently by invasive species. For example, we have uh, killer whales coming to Buffing Bay with high frequency during recent years and they are very interested to kill narwhals. So there are so many things happening right now in this part of the world that I believe it's very important to study these animals right now. Evgeny, thank you so much for joining us on Science Weekly. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Evgeny. We'll be back next week with another COVID-19 episode so if you have any questions you'd like to ask, head over to theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions. That's all one word. See you then.
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.